Labor Day is sort of a marker in a presidential campaign. Uh, and things will start to get more serious, and we're starting to see kind of a winnowing of the of the pack. So just to give our listeners some sense of like the pacing, it's about to pick up post Labor Day, and then it really picks up after New Year. My God, I mean, it's not busy yet. Good Lordy. The Democratic presidential primary is heating up, so we break down where the candidates stand on climate. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and a contributing editor with Green Tech Media. Our podcast is coming to you today from a new location. It's the personal office of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is, of course, our partner on this show. Um, I'm not actually much of a movie person, but this office is pretty sweet. There are movie set pieces everywhere. There's the shotgun that Schwarzenegger uses in the Terminator movie. And Brandon Hurlbut, our co-host, is here with me, our Democrat partner at Boundary Stone Partners and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Brandon, what's it like being in Arnold's office? I don't know why you're not a movie person, Julia, but um, I this is exciting to be here. It's my first time here, unlike you and Shane, who went here without me because you're selfish. <laughs> that is definitely oh, not oh, how fun. that went down. Selfish, fun, like it's, you know. <laughs> that was the voice of Shane Skelton, a Republican. He's a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. How's it going, Shane? It's going well. I am finally feeling good after the exciting Political Climate Plus outing we had Sunday. I don't want to name names. Uh, some people might have been asked to leave Bank of California Stadium by security. Some people might have taken their shirts off after an exciting goal. But uh, it is you're it is talking now about light. the soccer game, just so people know. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the LAFC soccer game. For those who yes. care about MLS soccer at all, LAFC. And the LA Galaxy is a lot of fun. We enjoyed it maybe more than we needed to, but it is now Wednesday afternoon and I'm feeling great. Maybe we could do a Twitter poll on which one of us was kicked out of the stadium and which one of us had our, their shirt off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm going to tweet that out. <laughs> Who got kicked out? Who I, wasn't even gonna, I wasn't even going to narrow it down to us, Brandon, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm ruling myself out of this for sure. Uh, what's lovely about soccer, though, is that it's definitely bipartisan. I've never seen two sides come together in such a lovely way. Um, so Shane is not here. He is on the line. Also on the line with us, who's overhearing this ridiculous conversation, is Emma Faringer Merchant. She's a staff writer with Green Tech Media, and she's reported extensively on the Democratic primary candidate's climate plans, and will be helping us walk through these proposals on this week's show. Uh, Emma, how are you doing? Is your head spinning from all these uh, climate policies yet? Hi, all. Happy to be here. Um, I made a spreadsheet, so I think I have it under control, but we'll see in a few minutes when we dig into it. You made a spreadsheet. I guess there's uh, enough material that you have to do that. So great. Uh, okay, so we're in for a lot of climate coverage in the days and weeks to come. There's the United Nations Climate Summit coming up and hundreds of other climate events being held in and around that meeting, including a major climate strike being held on Friday, September 20th. And as we speak, actually, youth climate activist Greta Thunberg is arriving in New York City after her two-week sailing trip across the Atlantic in order to attend the upcoming protests and meetings. And uh, as we know, she took the boat to avoid the carbon emissions associated with flying. So interesting. I know there's a crowd there greeting her right now. 
Welcome to the United States, Greta. I'm sure there was not a single seat available on a flight that was already scheduled to come from overseas. So I'm glad we were able to reduce uh, those carbon emissions to that boat trip. Hey, she's staying true to her message here. I guess you can't really falter for that. So anyway, uh, while climate activists did not succeed in getting the Democratic National Committee to host an official climate debate for the 2020 presidential candidates, Clearly, they've put this issue on the agenda. They shone a spotlight on it, and now major TV outlets have responded. Quick note that on September 4th, CNN will host a seven-hour climate crisis town hall, and on September 19th and 20th, MSNBC will host a televised climate forum. So maybe not what the activists wanted exactly, but man, there's certainly a lot of climate coverage coming up. And in fact, seven-hour climate crisis town hall, maybe even too much? I don't know. That's a long time. I'm excited. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. More attention to climate is good. It is good, but I do wonder if a seven-hour town hall is really the best way to package that so it resonates with people. Yeah, I really think we would have all uh, been better served by a a debate because everyone's going to have the opportunity to lay out their plan, probably mostly unchallenged. And what I really want to know is when we get into some of the nitty gritty where some stuff requires, you know, 60 votes in the Senate, other things can be done by executive order. When things get tough, you know, where do you go? What's your outlet? How are you going to make sure that you reduce emissions the way that you're claiming in your plan? And I think having the candidates together on a stage would really help us tease out some of those answers because they'll hold each other accountable. And I'm not sure the town hall forum, uh, while it's better than nothing, is the best way to do that. Well, we're going to actually tease out some of those pieces of those plans in this show. And several candidates have already released their climate proposals ahead of this big, you know, upcoming September showdown. There were just proposals released in recent days from Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang. Meanwhile, we have to note that the climate candidate, Jay Inslee, has dropped out of the presidential race to run for a third term as Washington governor. So before we move on, I want to get a minute to address Inslee's departure from this race. Uh, Emma, you you covered that. What were your takeaways from his decision here? Yeah, I think if uh, Inslee would have stayed in the race, the climate town hall might have been closer to 10 hours rather than seven because he has so many policies he, he's proposing. <laughs> Inslee leaving definitely leaves an entrance open for one of the other Democratic candidates to come in and sort of swoop his climate candidate position. Um, He did leave with sort of a bang, dropping the last bit of his huge climate plan that he sort of sent out in bits and pieces. And this one was specifically focused on rural America and the significant emissions that come from land use. So like his other plans, this one was pretty big. It had four strategies and 15 policy initiatives included. And he called it the last sort of strike in his all-out national mobilization to defeat the climate crisis. One of the big takeaways I, I noticed from it was this carbon farming initiative. He wants to basically pay farmers around the country to carry out the environmental services that they already do, like um, sequestering carbon through farming. Um, And he actually wants to increase the conservation stewardship program, which is a program that pays farmers for conservation, to $3 billion from $1 billion. And that's a fund that other candidates have also proposed increasing, like Elizabeth Warren. He also noted um, that he wants to work on rural electrification and make all national parks free, which brings in about $200 million a year for the U.S. in terms of those fees. Uh, But he... In releasing this document and when he dropped out said that it was an open source, so definitely a possibility for these other candidates to kind of learn from Inslee's message and and potentially incorporate some of those policy planks. 
Brandon, what do you think? Do you think other candidates will take up Inslee's proposal? We haven't yet gone into it in super depth on this podcast. We're still holding out for an interview, but we do want to discuss it because it had so many good ideas. Do you see that resonating with other candidates? I hope so. The plans are terrific. Um, and disappointed that he won't be a part of the, the forum and that he's no longer in the race. But um, I think his legacy will live on because uh, he's given uh, these uh, terrific plans for candidates to take up and run on. Shane, do you have any thoughts on Inslee's departure? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Emma cited that he mentioned these are open source documents. And I think that's important. Uh, what's what's interesting to me is I think about watching candidates drop out and who was sort of standing what ground, whether it's climate or or social justice or whatever else that they're talking about, is that the political memory fades. And I think the policy memory fades even quicker. And so this primary is eventually going to be over and there's going to be a general election with Donald Trump. And, you know, I was talking to Brandon offline the other day and just wondering aloud sort of how much of this will people remember? I don't recall a presidential election in my adult life and even, you know, my teenage life or adolescent life where there were so much policy out there. So in one way, it's exciting to see people really thinking about how to solve the problems that we're facing. And I think that's important. But I actually think all of this will fade from view during a general election and it'll be picked up again in the future, whether as if there's a Democrat who wins the election, you know, maybe during transition, you start to look at some of these policies and see what you can do. Your first annual budget when you start setting your agenda. Uh, if Donald Trump stays in office, you know, maybe congressional Republicans who want to be a little bit more engaged on climate but don't know how to be can look at some of these ideas again as an open source. But I think he sort of did his job by getting some of these ideas that hadn't really been fully worked through into the mainstream. I don't know how much the detailed ideas of any candidate on any issue are going to stay in the mainstream when the primary is over and the general election comes to be. Well, I guess we'll see uh, if a Democrat wins the presidency, uh, as you noted, Inslee's plans could be front and center if he ends up as maybe even head of the EPA, if he wants to do that. Or there was some talk on Twitter of him becoming, you know, climate czar one day, you know, if a Democrat won. So we'll see. It may not be the end of Inslee, although to be determined how this plays out in the primary. Speaking of that primary, I want to go to some of the other climate proposals from other Democratic contenders that are still in the race. So let's turn to that now. Senator Bernie Sanders recently released his long-awaited climate platform. As a leading contender for the 2020 Democratic presidential candidacy, there's a lot of interest in this plan, which is arguably one of the most sweeping proposals of any plan introduced to date. Emma, you wrote a great story detailing Sanders' proposal. Can you walk us through some of the key takeaways? Definitely. So, yeah, as I said before, Inslee leaving the race allowed for any of these candidates to sort of swoop in and snag um, that title of the, the climate candidate. I don't know if Inslee actually gave himself that title or if the media did, but it's definitely up for grabs right now. Bernie came in right after and dropped this huge behemoth climate plan that basically blew any of the other um, candidates' climate plans out of the water, at least in terms of its price tag, which is more than $16 trillion. So far, we'd seen a lot of candidates, you know, say $1.7 trillion, $2 trillion. Um, Inslee's was three, which was going to incentivize $9 trillion in total investment um, with returns as well. And Bernie's is basically way bigger than that. It, it touches all aspects of society, and he framed it as basically being the answer to the Green New Deal rather than that sort of open-ended call to 
fill the Green New Deal resolution with policies. He's instead presenting what he thinks that Green New Deal should look like. So one of the things that was particularly noteworthy to me was that he proposed using publicly owned power marketing administrations to distribute electricity, and that would um, also bring in money, and that was a big part of funding his plan. He also said that he would spend the first two years of the plan establishing a social safety net and using some of that money um, for a transition for fossil fuel workers who might be out of a job because of um, the plan that he sets forth. He also gets into a lot of parts of a plan that you might not expect to be included, but are now included in this sort of Green New Deal framing. We're seeing like $14.7 billion for locally owned grocery stores and over $30 billion for local food co-ops. He talks about how um, potentially increasing electricity costs while you transition to clean energy or renewables in this case, because Bernie wants 100% renewables, might impact food prices. So he's really thinking about this in a holistic way and framing it in light of the Green New Deal being the framework that the country is now thinking about um, climate action, or at least the democratic field. Yeah, you mentioned he's pro 100% renewables, and a lot of people in the industry called out that his proposal does not address nuclear energy or carbon capture and storage technology. I think you reported that his team called those false solutions. Uh, So I guess, Brandon, what do you think of that? Do you think a plan can not address nuclear or carbon capture and address this issue? What do you, how do you think your Democrats are at least responding to that? Well, I'll say a couple things, and I think this will be sort of teased out in the climate forum on September 4th uh, that CNN is hosting. Um, first of all, uh, Democrats have shown uh, great uh, sort of uh, consensus on this issue. All of the Democratic candidates seem to support net zero emissions by 2050, which is what the scientists say we have to do, uh, and they will invest trillions of dollars to do it. Now, whether it's three or four or nine or 16, it's tr- I mean, this is not where the party was in 2016, uh, but they are sort of unified behind this right now. Uh, the Democrats have a vision on this. Now they're sort of debating as to how to execute on that on that vision. And so I think there are some differences, and I think that will sort of come out in uh, maybe the forum uh, or certainly the, the press uh, like you, Julian Emma, will, will definitely highlight it. Uh, there is a debate about nukes versus renewables. I, I tend to think that there's a pretty overwhelming majority, at least on existing nuclear, like why would you want to take that offline? And I think you will see a debate about fossil fuels, uh, whether they will or should be part of the equation going forward or not. And that sort of also brings labor unions into this. Uh, so because, you know, many union jobs are building natural gas pipelines and stuff. And so if you're trying to cultivate relationships with labor unions, this uh, sort of debate over fossil fuels, I think, will will play into that. And so uh, we'll also see how they feel about process. I, I'm hoping that in this climate forum, we're not only going to see a debate on these policies that Emma's talking about, but also, like, how can you organize a political coalition around your vision for climate? How can you bring together activists, people of color, labor unions together to support your vision? And then on process, how are you going to implement it? Are you supportive of the filibuster or not? Because as we've talked about on the show, that will be key to whether, you know, climate action takes place or not. I think that's interesting. And it reminds me of coverage of Joe Biden's climate proposals. And I'm willing to admit that things get amplified in the press that maybe uh, aren't entirely conflicts in reality. 
But there are clear differences in these plans. So it's not, I, I'm also hesitant to put the blame entirely on the press, because one thing that came out around Biden's plan was that it was more labor focused and that it included a broader suite of technologies, didn't sort of didn't take anything off the table, which made, I think, some workers feel more comfortable. So I one thing I appreciate about, you know, you know, Bernie's plan is he's being honest about the scale of the problem and the type of investments that we're going to need to fix this. Now, uh, you know, whether we need $36 billion of victory cards or not, we can all debate, <laughs> but like he's being honest that there are going to be trade-offs and things that we have to do to match the scale of this problem. I also think that it's worth noting that in terms of labor, I think you know, Biden does include all of these technologies, including nuclear, in his plan. But Bernie actually qualified that he wants to create and thinks that he can create with his plan over 20 million um, good paying union jobs. That's something that Biden touched on, but he didn't actually quantify the number of jobs that his plan would create. And I think in terms of the economic investment that a Sanders plan would would bring about, there's definitely a lot of room for job growth. It's just not in the traditional areas that we think of when we when we maybe think about energy jobs. Great. Shane, what do you think? Yeah, so as you can imagine, I'm not in love with this. I'll, I'll give one compliment to start it off, and Brandon alluded to this. Um, this is the first Democratic candidate that I've seen on any major policy issue actually acknowledge what the costs of what they're trying to accomplish are. And I actually think that's critically important because you can start to have a serious debate about trade-offs once you know what the menu of opportunities are and the menu of costs are. So I do, you know, I do give him credit for not just, you know, putting all this stuff down on paper and pretending like it was all going to be free. What I get really frustrated about is how he's willing to rule out certain solutions. So for example, I would rather think about it if I were putting together a plan and I look at some of these and Bernie's in particular, I would rather start by better defining our goals and think about how the U.S. invests in energy projects and who's best to carry it out. So you can say, we'll get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. Well, what does that mean? Something subsidized, you know, carbon capture and sequestration. Now, I know he said that's not part of his plan, but I would just try to think about what is our end game? What resources do we need to get there? And then how should we invest accordingly? Like I, for example would prefer an electricity standard and or a clean energy standard where we know you can decarbonize a large part of the economy that way. And I would say natural gas is a huge bounty that we have. Fossil fuels are always going to be part of our energy mix. So let's figure out how to make that carbon free or methane free, or let's figure out how to, you know, how to use CCUS. Let's figure out, uh, you know, carbon sequestration technology, pulling it out of the atmosphere. Why would we say that that's not real? That's not possible. Aren't, aren't the climate you know, heroes, the ones out there saying, we don't want to talk about what we can't do. We want to talk about what we can do. So in ways, I find his plan really ambitious, but in ways, I find it to be really short-sighted. And I also think, you know, you don't have to redo everything from the federal government down. The cost curve is working. Renewables are becoming incredibly inexpensive. Uh, utilities are stepping up. Local governments and municipals are stepping up and trying to find ways to deploy, you know, more EV infrastructure. So I don't think you have to say we're going to spend, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars deploying EV infrastructure. I think you can look for policy tweaks that make sure that utilities and municipalities who want to invest in those get the approval either from their PUC or from their board members to do that. I just think that there's a number of ways to look at our economy, how it's currently situated, and find solutions 
that you might be able to get through Congress rather than pretend like we're starting with a blank slate and the federal government has to run it all from the top down. So that, that's probably a bit much for this for this plan. But I guess what I'm saying is some of it's ambitious, some of it's creative, but a lot of it just seems so unthinkable. And I didn't mean to be flippant towards um, Greta earlier either. Maybe I did. But the point is, I get flippant about anything that I feel like is more for show than it is for solving the problem. And I'm not sure that her taking a boat or this plan that he put out got us any closer than we were prior. So I think Shane said on a on a couple points that will also I think be teased out between the the Democratic you know candidates in this forum and it's um, I think you know obviously I agree with Shane renewable energy costs are coming down this is very exciting uh, but uh, on this issue unlike others we do have this you know shot clock uh, you know we have to get to certain emission reductions by 2030. Uh, which can be a you know sort of a, a point of no return in, in 2050, and so we have to go faster on this. And I think you know we'll see what these candidates have to say. But I think you know, do you think that this is a environmental problem that just needs to be solved with uh, some of the you know tweaks that Shane is talking about, or do you agree with the scientists and feel like this is an emergency and a crisis? And also, do you think that this is part of a larger problem? like a system-wide problem where we have, you know, rampant wealth inequality in this country um, and, you know, uh, challenges in access to health care, that this should all be sort of taken uh, up together. And I think that is, there is some disagreement there between the Democrats, and we'll see who's on what side of that. You know, who thinks that this is an emergency, a crisis, that requires wholesale system change and a different role for government maybe, or is it just uh, an environmental problem that we need to solve with some policy tweaks? Keep in mind, Brandon, that what individual candidates thinks doesn't really matter, right? What's achievable is what matters. And solving one of the largest challenges in front of us, which is climate change, doesn't get easier if you add it to some of the other large challenges in front of us, like income inequality. I mean, I, when I talk about tweaks, I don't mean let's pretend like it's not happening. Let's tweak a reg here and there. But I, I just made a list right before we got on here. So find some way to price the negative externalities. I don't care if that's a carbon tax and dividend like, like Buttigieg is proposing, cap and trade, other carbon tax proposals, but find some way to price that externality. Um, continue to give folks more buy-in. So to me, that means make some of these tax credits for EVs, for example, available for secondhand vehicles or find ways to make expensive battery technologies and other things that are typically you know, reserved for the rich available to everyone so that everyone not only can access these products, but also wants them to be more uh, widely um, um, deployed because we're all benefiting from them. Force large overseas emitters like China, and we've talked about this a lot, to improve manufacturing practices if they want to sell into the U.S. and reduce emissions with renewable storage, nuclear, and yes, U.S. gas and carbon capture and sequestration. There are little things you can do in PURPA and in the Federal Power Act that can force some of this downhill. And I just feel like that's a conversation that's easy to have because we sort of know where we're starting and what we're doing. When you start talking about income inequality and healthcare, all very important things, I mean, I want to see someone explain to me, whether it's you now or someone else, how we make large challenges easier to solve by adding them to other large challenges. The, the idea is that you build a bigger coalition uh, and you get more people attracted to the cause. You, you enlarge, you know, you add those issues together and you enlarge sort of the, the base around it. But what I think is going to be really interesting is for the general election, uh, because you have this sort of consensus between Democrats on, you know, spending, you know, trillions of dollars uh, to address this problem, you know, and create 20 million jobs and, or, or, you know, other candidates are promising millions of jobs as well. And then on the other side, you have Trump, who is saying climate change is a hoax. 
Wind turbines cause cancer. When the wind isn't blowing, you can't watch TV. And the way to deal with extreme hurricanes is to maybe nuke them. So, like, this, you cannot get a bigger divide on an issue than what we have between whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be on climate change and pre- and the leader of the Republican Party on climate change. That is true. But, it, I mean, I guess we're so used to seeing these trillion-dollar figures that maybe our eyes gloss over. But there's a big difference between a couple trillion and 16 trillion. And I wonder if maybe no one's paying that close attention to those numbers. They're more just excited about what's in these proposals. But... And the reality of it is that's just a lot of spending. And so if that were to become real, it would be a major shift. And so, I don't know, I think you got to really pay attention to to those numbers. And it's, uh, there's consensus, as you're saying, but there are clear differences. And that's a big spending ticket. And I hope we don't have sticker shock over it. It's worth pointing out that Sanders in his plan does talk a little bit about how he would pay for the plan, whereas some others sort of take from different parts of the federal budget. His, his proposes new ways of paying for the program and sort of quantifies where that $16 trillion would come from. You know, I, I just want people to know, because uh, I, I think it gets lost. We found, in, in, and people disagree on the final number, whether it's $29 trillion or $20 trillion or $10 trillion in the housing crisis for the government to buy bad mortgages, bad assets. We bailed out the, We found that money to bail out the banks and prop up the system. Now, it worked. It was great policy. We should have done it, you know, and the government ultimately got paid back. But if we can find those trillions to save the banks, we can't find those trillions to protect our species and like cleaner air, cleaner water, good jobs for people, have more income. I think we can. Speaking of different approaches, you know, Bernie Sanders is a front runner here, along with Elizabeth Warren, who is another progressive. And they're often being sort of pitted against each other, even though in real life they say that they're also friends. But she has addressed climate uh, not in a comprehensive plan, but in several other pieces of her plans. So I guess, Emma, I want to go to you to hear how she's approaching this and how her her plan is different uh, from Bernie's. Yeah, so I think Warren has taken, I guess, more of an Inslee-esque approach of putting out pieces of her plan um, bit by bit. And she's framed them in terms of different aspects of the economy or government that they would impact. So she has a green manufacturing plan, a plan that focuses on um, how the military can confront climate change. She notes climate impacts in her agriculture plan. And I think that this is interesting. I mean, her green manufacturing plan does note $2 trillion over 10 years that she would apportion for green research manufacturing. And um, she also apportions $400 billion for clean energy research and development. And then $1.5 trillion of that $2 trillion would be for federal procurement in U.S.-made um, emission-free energy products. But I think that her approach to confronting this sort of tit-for-tat of these candidates putting out climate plans, which I think is great, and something that hopefully they'll be able to parse out in the town hall is a bit more, I guess, shows some understanding of how climate is going to come to impact so many different parts of U.S. society and um, the government. So I think thinking about it in that context, rather than maybe this big behemoth climate plan is a bit of an original tack to take. But, you know, I'm wondering how much of um, whether it's having the impact in terms of getting the attention that it needs to, as opposed to, you know, Sanders unveiling this huge Green New Deal. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's a lot of people in the climate activism community that want to see people recognize, want to see the candidates recognize that climate change influences every part of life in the economy. So uh, I think both of these plans address that in different ways. And it'll be interesting to see, I guess, what the primary voters make of that, those approaches, if they appreciate one over the other. Brandon, do you have any insight on that? Do you got any rumblings from the Democrats on who's getting more traction? I don't know. If you look at the crowds, though, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren had over 10,000 here in L.A. recently, uh, I think 15,000 in Seattle. That's a good sign. Great. Well, another candidate I want to touch on because he just released his plan is Andrew Yang. He put out a plan that was very technology focused, even perhaps too technology focused for some people. He talks about geoengineering and wanting to, you know, intervene in addressing climate change, which is very controversial. We don't necessarily know the impacts of, you know, putting aerosols up in the atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays, for instance. So that was one piece. He also talked about introducing a carbon tax, which is a familiar policy tool. He would set that tax at $40 per ton, rising gradually to $100 per ton. It would also include a fee on imports from other countries. In addition, he talked about an aggressive timeline for moving away from fossil fuels uh, for cars and moving to a renewable energy electric grid by 2035, although unclear if that renewable definition includes nuclear or not, based on the way he framed his plan. I guess, Emma, what are some other pieces of this plan that you think are important to highlight and perhaps some of the other controversial parts of it, since there was some mixed reactions here? (laughs) I want to start with two words, space mirrors, (laughs) which I think encompasses maybe a lot of the backlash or, or a lot of the talk about Andrew Yang's plan. I think it is really interesting to think about how much this plan focuses on technology and geoengineering, as opposed to maybe some of the more like lo-fi plans like Inslee's focus on agriculture, for instance. Um, Yang wants to have a department of technology, new national labs that will work on new technologies to confront the climate crisis. Um, He wants to spend $50 for next generation nuclear over five years, which, um, as was touched on before, is not something that's super popular with several candidates. And yeah, he wants to put mirrors up in space and then potentially take them down if they if they don't work, but just as a sort of way to buy more time and reflect um, sun away from, from the U.S., which I think is geoengineering is something that is talked about in climate circles, but compared to, I think, how a lot of climate folks talk about solutions is, is a little bit not what the focus is for for a lot of candidates. So it's interesting to see someone proposing those those types of tools. Shane, I know you're not voting in the Democratic primary here, but in terms of the substance of this plan, I mean, given what you know about the what given what you know about the climate, you know, sector, what do you think of this? What are your thoughts on geoengineering in particular? I mean, from the most obvious sense, I think it's about as likely what he wants to do as his candidate a candidacy is to survive uh, the primary and, of course, a general election. I do like one thing, not really anything specifically in the plan, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of gaslighting here, but I do like the idea of, of embracing technology, not for the things that it can't do, which I think he does a lot of, but for the things that it can do. I just always feel like it's easier to incentivize people to spend money doing things they already want to do than it is to force them to do things they don't want to do. So to the extent that I can provide a silver lining, I do think technology is something to be celebrated. I just think maybe he celebrated it in the wrong way in that plan. But uh, 
I realize I know nothing about Democratic primary voters. Watching this last few months has been quite enjoyable for me, but I've also learned that everything I thought I knew was wrong. So who knows? Maybe he'll win. I don't know. I don't think his polling would suggest that. Um, But sticking to his climate plan, I think another piece of the Yang plan that was controversial is this piece about climate adaptation, where he talks about, quote, moving to higher ground and sort of accepting that climate change has already had an impact. And you might as well just reorganize society around that. Emma, do you have any other thoughts on that component of, of Yang's plan? Yeah, I think that that was definitely received as somewhat controversial, especially because, you know, a lot of these low-lying areas, um, I think, would be impacting more frontline communities and these frontlines of um, these communities on the front lines of climate change. And I think it is unclear if the money that Yang would be giving would be enough to re- relocate these people or if people even want to be relocated. I think that, you know, a tough thing with climate change is, of course, we're coping with rising seas, but you also have to work with people and not not tell people what to do. And in these areas that are often hit by hurricanes, of course, there are some people who might want to leave the area and um, move elsewhere, but not everyone wants to. So I think that, you know, this higher ground idea potentially has some some cracks. Yeah, I mean, it's good that he's addressing adaptation. I don't think even all candidates have even gone into adaptation yet. So that's, A, interesting to see. He does include, you know, line items in his plan for relocation. But as you say, there's controversy with that. Just so we're clear, can you actually walk us through the line items in his plan that address climate adaptation? And do you know if this relates at all to Yang's proposal to have a universal basic income of $1,000 a month for every American? Is that something that would be directed toward climate adaptation or are these separate? He says that he wants to um, use $40 billion in subsidies, grants, and low-interest loans to relocate people or move to higher ground. Um, and he also wants to use $30 billion for high-risk cities to build seawalls and water pumps. So I think that that dividend would not encompass that. I think that also more federal dollars would go to moving, just relocating people. Got it. Okay. Uh, Brandon, what are your thoughts of the Yang plan? Do you have any other takeaways? I would just say that we're about to enter a, a new sort of phase of the campaign. So, you know, the prior phase that we had, you had a lot of candidates like Andrew Yang. They had a platform that could put some ideas out, open source, you know, approach. The Jay Inslee plans um, are out there. And, you know, Labor Day is sort of a marker in a presidential campaign. You know, I, you know, was a part of the Obama campaign from the very first day. So uh, Labor Day sort of signals like a new shift into the the campaign, a new phase. Uh, And things will start to get more serious. And we're starting to see kind of a winnowing of the of the pack. You know, it was started as like 20, right? Now a few people are out. Andrew Yang probably won't be around that much longer. We've already seen today another candidate has dropped out. Senator Kristen Gillibrand from New York uh, is no longer in the race. So we will start, you know, we'll continue to see this race winnow down. Yeah, and Hickenlooper actually also dropped out recently. He is now going to run for Senate in Colorado, right? Right, and so now... We've sort of established there's like 10, 11, you know, the people that made the climate forum. And there's really five or six out of those that are really the top tier candidates. Um, And then, you know, there'll be this period that'll go to like the holidays, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And that's when 
Average bowlers will turn, tune out again. And then we'll come into the new year, and then it's a sprint to Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And that is going to be an exciting time. Uh, and so, you know, things will happen very quickly uh, at that point. So just to give our listeners some sense of, like, the pacing, it's about to pick up post-Labor Day, and then it really picks up after the new year. Oh, my God. I mean, it's not busy yet. Good Lordy. Um, well, you mentioned the CNN debate. Just as a note, the qualifying candidates so far are Julian Castro. Andrew Yang is on that list. Senator Kamala Harris. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Vice President Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, and Cory Booker. That is the current lineup as I'm seeing it. Uh, I mentioned a few other names there that we haven't got to on this show yet. So, Emma, I want to hear from you. What have we heard so far from Kamala Harris? She's another one of the front runners right now, a little further behind the other candidates, but still in the mix. What has she said on climate so far that you think is important to highlight? Yeah, so Harris is one of the candidates who hasn't put out a full climate plan, and her comments so far on climate change have been pretty in line with the rest of the candidates. You know, she has endorsed a Green New Deal. Um, recently, she came out with the Climate Equity Act, which she introduced with Representative Ocasio-Cortez, um, and that act would require environmental legislation to include an equity score to assess the impact on frontline communities um, when it's passed through Congress. Um, it would also create a climate and environmental justice office. Currently, there's an environmental justice office as part of the EPA, but this would create you know, a more focused office to basically ensure that these communities who have not always been included um, in discussions about climate change um, at the highest levels of government have a voice there, um, especially as we're starting to frame these conversations around the Green New Deal with justice so front of mind. So it'll be interesting to see if Harris, you know, drops um, a climate plan. I think she said that she is she is working on something and it, it's expected. Everyone's sort of waiting. And I especially think with the precedent set by other candidates, it's, it's now become sort of expected for candidates to put something out. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a wait and see game what, what will be included. I'm sure that there will be a lot of environmental justice framing in that document as, as she's positioned herself um, so far in the race with this Climate Equity Act and also with her work um, in California. Yeah, as we, noted in our, as we noted in our last episode, she actually just did a reversal where she's leaving a fundraising dinner to instead go attend the CNN town hall after pushback from the Sunrise Movement and other climate activists. So she's clearly seeing that she needs to step up her game on this. Another candidate that we haven't heard too much from yet, but I've heard rumblings that he expects to be the climate candidate in Inslee's place is Cory Booker. But I haven't heard too much from him. Brandon, do you have a read on where Cory Booker's uh, landing right now in climate? No, I think we'll learn a lot more on September 4th. Um, you know, keep talking about this forum. People are making fun of the seven hours, but um, they're going to have to... Uh, you know, present their their vision on this. And I think we'll see who is really comfortable with this issue or not. Because I think in even some of the prior debates, we've seen that there are certain candidates who've thought about this issue deeply, are making it a priority. And then there's others who like, you know, are not as fluent on it and comfortable with it. And I think that will sort of come out on uh, at the CNN forum. And do, you think it's, um, it. do you think it's a problem, though, that Booker, Buttigieg, 
and Harris in particular haven't come out with plans yet. Is that going to hurt them at all? Are they behind? No, not yet, because we're still so early, you know, in this process. Um, I mean, I think at a certain point, you know, for like Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, those voters have shown in the polling uh, that they are prioritizing this issue. And so in order to, I think, win in those states, you're going to have to present a clear and compelling vision on this and the, and the sort of policies that you favor for those voters. Um, and they've got time to do that. So I don't think it's a problem right now, but they'll have to do it at some point. Also is potentially, you know, a late plan advantage where, as we said before, Inslee has sort of presented his plan as, as an open source document. And going forward, these candidates might be able to take a, a sweep of what has been proposed so far and call from what they think would be best to to create their plan. Fair point. Well, I think we'll leave it there and all the candidates' plans, as we've said a few times, they will really be flushed out further in the coming days and weeks. There's a lot of climate coverage coming up. We'll certainly be part of that. We're going to be heading to New York to cover the UN Climate Summit, so we'll be part of the conversation there. Yeah, there was a climate meeting at the G7, but our president skipped it. That is true. President Trump did skip out on a meeting at the G7 on climate change where they actually dedicated some funds to helping the Amazon, to helping Brazil recover. Not as much as Fire recover. Island, apparently. But, um, right. The, uh, the Fire Island organizer for the failed music concert did succeed in raising more funds than G7 could put together to stop the fires in the Amazon. Just a little point of reference. Um, which, note that Bolsonaro did not want to accept those funds uh, side note, Leonardo DiCaprio put together $5 million to help on-the-ground organizations. So people are starting to react to the Amazon fires, a huge issue, which I'm sure listeners have seen crop up. But to your point, Trump did miss the G7 climate meeting and said he wasn't aware of the time or had to meet with other staffers, which was weird because— No, he said he had to meet with other leaders. Other and leaders. those leaders were in that meeting. Right. So another lie. On that note, let's turn to our final section. All right, this is the segment of our show called Say Something Nice, where we have our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, let's go to you first. All right. I mean, my thing is kind of backhanded, which I guess is about 50% of the time these days. But I want to say something about um, Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden. I mean, he has become the most entertaining thing I have going on. Most of my TV shows don't run in the summer. So I'm kind of like signing up for all these apps and trying to figure out what I can watch on you know, Showtime or HBO or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. But every time he speaks publicly, it's like amazing. I don't know why he says the things he says. I don't know if he's you know, lost it completely, but it's very entertaining. And I, I want to thank him for making my summer more entertaining than it otherwise would have been when watching TV. Yeah. Oh, can you give us an example? Uh, yeah. So for example, within the last three days, I'm not going to mention some of the more sort of offensive stuff, but some of the funny stuff was uh, asking what's not to like about Vermont when you're in New Hampshire. If uh, anyone who follows politics knows that New Hampshire is a pretty critical state. So when he was asked to say something special about the town he was in and didn't even realize what state he was in, that was not helpful. And then maybe even funnier the next day when he was confronted about all this stuff said, I'm not going nuts, which is the kind of tape I don't think a candidate wants. But again, it is the kind of tape that makes me laugh when I'm watching the news at night. (laughs) All right, Brandon, what do you have? My say something nice is to Joe Walsh. He's a congressman, former congressman, Republican congressman from Illinois, who is now running against Donald Trump. I don't like Joe Walsh. I don't think he's a good person. Uh, But he is running, so he's running to the right 
of Donald Trump on many issues, but he's running to the left of him on climate change. Joe Walsh said the Republican Party has to acknowledge it's a problem. This president won't. Interesting. All right, maybe some competition to talk about on the Republican side in future, although I'm pretty sure Trump's got a lock on the polls right now. Emma, do you have anything to contribute here? I know you're an impartial journalist in all this, but uh, we'd love your concluding thoughts. <laughs> As a Minnesotan, I've been training my whole life to say something nice. So, yes, very excited to contribute to this segment. I'd say that uh, it's just been really exciting to see climate being talked about so much in the primary. Um, looking forward to seeing what happens at the town hall. Hopefully we can start to draw some more lines between what candidates have to say, and we'll see if that continues in the general election. <laughs> I don't know if I have too much hope for that, but we'll see what happens. Great. And we'll be following your coverage on Green Tech Media, of course, as all of this unfolds. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Emma. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Emma. That is our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can find Political Climate on almost every podcasting service, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Let's see, what else? Julia, are we on eSports yet? <laughs> Not on eSports, Brandon. I know you'd love that, though. You and Shane could bond. I hear the kids are like watching people play video games. Can they watch us do a podcast? Maybe YouTube. Why are we not on YouTube? All we could podcast on YouTube. We could do YouTube See a live Julia? show. I'm just, a, I'm just ideas guy here. You are. We could show the office that we're in, Arnold's office. Right. Good. Good. If we do YouTube, time. you got to keep your clothes on, Brandon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you well. just gave away the poll. <laughs> All right. This is officially the end of our show. Tweet at us at poly underscore climate. We want to hear from you. And finally, please leave us a review. Really appreciate everyone who's done that so far. It's super helpful. Thanks again. And until next time. <laughs> <laughs>